Christchurch, New Malden, 8th of September 2019, 11 o'clock service. David Taylor speaking in the series Romans and the Covenant, Why God's Covenant Was Needed. I do wonder whether the Apostle Paul hadn't been studying the book of Amos as he wrote these early chapters of Romans, since Paul uses very much the same element of surprise as Amos does at the beginning of his letter. Perhaps you'd like to just take a look at it. If, you haven't, if you've got a Bible in front of you, if you just take a look at page 916, which is the beginning of Amos, page 916, and uh, there's a heading, two verses in, uh, which our translations have added the words, judgment of Israel's neighbours. And this sums up what most of the next two columns are about. So it starts off in verse uh, 3 there, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. New New Living Translation puts this perhaps rather more clearly. They beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with threshing sledges of iron. So they were cruel there to the people of Gilead. And then in the next paragraph at the top of the second column, it begins for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Next paragraph, halfway down that second column begins For three sins of Tyre, even for four I will not turn back by wrath, because she sold whole captives to to Edom. So so that's, uh, she sold whole communities captive to Edom. And then, uh, and then for Tyre, oh we've done that one, yes, sorry. You can imagine the people of Israel responding to this, smugly thinking to themselves, yes, quite right, our neighbouring countries have done all, have deserve all the wrath that's coming to them. And here is Amos going from one country to another, saying what, what the wrath is coming to them. And the final uh, paragraph of chapter one begins like this. So it's over on the, the, the second column there, uh, on the second page, page 917, for about four lines down. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he ripped open the preg- pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. The dreadful things that they were doing. Yes, they definitely deserved judgment too. And on into chapter two. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. Whoops, this is getting rather closer to home. On into chapter two, and then uh, quite right, the Moabites are, are awful, aren't they? And then it becomes rather closer to home. Verse uh, four. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. So this is getting closer to home. Judah is our southern neighbor. This was... uh, Amos was speaking to the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And uh, we, Israelites and Judah, used to be a single nation. 
But yes, they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. So, quite right, they deserve God's judgment too. And then finally, the surprise moment comes. Top of the final column on page 917. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And whereas all the other nations had a rebuke that lasted one or two sentences, Israel's rebuke lasts for the next eight chapters until virtually the end of the book of Amos. So suddenly that self-righteous indignation at how other nations are behaving disappears as the prophet's judgment turns upon the hearers themselves, the nation of Israel. And so the editors of the New International Version give this a new heading, whereas everything up till now has been under the heading of judgment on Israel's neighbours, now a new section starts, top of the far right-hand column, judgment on Israel. And Romans works in very much the same way. Chapter 1 builds up the righteous indignation of the reader against the terrible things that their, that, that their people are doing. Isn't it awful what they are doing? I can imagine the readers of the Daily Mail would be loving this. Their leader columns are full of the dreadful things that other people are doing. We would never dream of doing that sort of thing. And the Apostle Paul focuses on two aspects of behaviour that he sees as particularly vile. Idolatry and sexual sin. There used to be someone who regularly wrote to the BBC Listener Response Programme who signed himself, disgusted, Tunbridge Wells. And for a while the BBC even took, up, took this up and came up with a humorous programme called Disgusted of Tunbridge Wells. So what foolish things were they doing? Well, let's look at idolatry first. Verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You only have to look around to see God's eternal power and divine power everywhere we look. If you just look around our church, there's a huge variety of different kinds of flowers and different colours, all taken from John Palmer's allotment, and with his permission, I might add. And in this first reading, we're looking at Psalm 19, which illustrates this perfectly by looking up at the skies. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Silent speech, invisible power being clearly seen. 
These seem an impossibility. Yet they aren't. It's God's way of revealing himself to man so that we are without excuse. Everywhere we look, we can see the glory of God being revealed in creation. And at night time, wow, what a wonder is up there in those skies. It is desperately sad that light pollution has impaired our view of the Milky Way so much. Due to light pollution, some people might feel they have some slight excuse for not being aware of the glory of God. Not much excuse. And even with light pollution obscuring the wonders of the night sky, there is so much to see of God's marvellous creation everywhere we look here on earth. I can remember years ago when I was helping with a scripture union camp near Sulcombe in South Devon. Our tents were pitched in a field above South Sands, for those of you who know well, well enough where, where the village of Sulcombe is. And as night time came, especially when the moon was on the wane, you could see the Milky Way stretched out before us at a diagonal angle above our heads. And often if we stood still long enough, we could see shooting stars going at high speed across the sky and then fizzing out. Heavens declaring the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The knowledge that there is an immortal God there who longs to be worshipped. And so, to turn the glory of the immortal God into images to made, made to look like mortal man, and birds and animals and reptiles and to worship these stone idols instead what utter foolishness we're particularly looking at how God's covenant is revealed in the book of Romans and this is God's covenant of creation God created man in his image to reflect his glory and to rule over all the earth, over everything that God had created. I was reading in a letter to a missionary recently in a book called God, That's Not Fair. It's a book, it's published by the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Anyway, the letter in, in this book said this. I was discussing some of your views about hell with a friend of mine who is very interested in comparative religion. He argued that it is wrong to criticize those whose religion is primitive and simple. After all, we all started as animists. It is just that some societies have evolved to a more mature belief in one God. You can no more blame people for having a primitive religion than you can blame them for living in mud huts. What do you think? Did we all start as animists, worshipping stone idols, like mentioned here in, in Romans? The problem with this argument is that it is wrong. We all started as animists, he argues. Well, we didn't. The heavens declare the glory of God. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And as their foolish hearts were darkened, so sadly that darkness of belief got passed on to the next generation and the next generation. It only takes someone to look up at the night sky and to look around at the wonders of creation to recognize that these ancestral idols are nothing. Their thinking had become futile and the hearts darkened. And it takes the Spirit of God to break out of this darkness. The missionary in that book that I quoted wrote back to this young man, he wrote this, your friend's idea that primitive man is an animist and only the more sophisticated peoples believe that there is only one God is rubbish. He wants to excuse tribal and other people for dealing with spirits on the grounds that they are simply underdeveloped. Very many animistic cultures have an awareness of God overall. For all that, they deal with lesser beings like spirits and demons. And that bears out in the arguments of Romans chapter 1, that people have pushed aside what they, didn't, what they did know about the true God. They did not honour him as God. So their ideas became distorted. The knowledge of God has been enthusiastically pushed under by sinful peoples of every race and culture, but it still lurks there in the background, a confused, blurred image and a warning witness too. But that's them, isn't it? Anyway, they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. Now, we're the upstanding Daily Mail reader. We don't do that. We're disgusted of Tunbridge Wells. However, just as Amos turned the tables from judgment upon the surrounding nations to judgment upon his own nation, so the Apostle Paul turns the tables from what other people do to what we do. I apologise that I'm going to zoom a little bit into chapter 2 because the argument continues straight on into that. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to borrow a little bit from chapter 2. The pronoun changes there from them to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. Ouch. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Ouch, ouch. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Ouch, ouch, ouch. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you will escape god's judgment Ooh. hmm just like amos 
where is the upstanding Daily, read, Daily Mail reader now, complaining at the dreadful behaviour that they are doing? But wait a minute. Much of this passage in Romans 1 is about people giving themselves over to idolatry. Their thinking becoming futile and their foolish hearts darkened. Surely, we don't do any of that. We're not implicated in this. You can't turn the tables from them to us over this issue. We, we don't worship idols. A little question hidden in chapter two, which really should cause us to think again. And since it relates to a main theme in chapter one, I hope you don't mind if I pinch that short sentence as well and look at it here. Chapter two, verse 22. You who abhor idols, that's us, do you rob temples? Hey, what's this about? I don't rob temples. Nobody robs temples except for those few really horrible people who still led off church roofs. So what's Paul getting at? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? To get the answer, I think we need to go back to a previous passage in the Bible about robbing God. Anybody remember somewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it talks about robbing God? Well, it's the very last page of the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to that last page of the Old Testament. There's a big blank page opposite, which simply says the New Testament. Now look at the headings on that last page. So if you turn to page 962, if you've got your pew Bibles, you'll see that big blank page on the opposite saying the New Testament, okay? And then page 962, second paragraph down on the left-hand column, there's a heading which says, robbing God, ooh. And go down nine lines to verse eight. God asks, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how do we rob God? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And on to verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So what has this to do with idolatry? It's to do with the failure to give glory to the Lord. They may be worshipping idols of stone or wood, but how small is our God? And the test for this can very easily be in our giving. If we don't think God is worthy of all our worship and praise, then we're not going to feel he is worthy of our generous giving either. And his temple is missing our tithes and offerings. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And what we spend our money on is a very good barometer of where our heart is. If our God is small, 
like the size of one of their idols, then our giving to God is likely to be small. If our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do, then our giving is likely to be big. And God in turn will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Where are our priorities? Have we spent more on our summer holidays than we have in our giving to the Lord over the course of a year? And if we have, might our summer holidays be our idol? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then finally, the bit that's such a hot potato these days. Those who exchange the glory of the immortal God, we are made in the image of God. We have the glory of the immortal God. Those who exchange the glory of the mortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals, etc. Well, God gives them over in sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And Paul goes on to describe all sorts of sexual lewdness, finally broadening it out into the in the closing verses of the chapter to all sorts of other evils too, described in single words. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He throws the book at them. The key thing in all of this is to understand why all these vile things have happened. For that we need to go back to verse 21. Although they knew God, the glory of creation showed that, they knew God. They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. We are made to glorify God and give thanks to him. That's why we're here. And if we choose not to, there will be consequences. Ultimately, God gives people over to what they desire. And if the desires of our heart are sinful, then he will give us over to them. They have a certain knowledge of God just by looking at his amazing creation, but they deliberately choose to suppress this in order to practice wickedness. John Stott in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today, differentiates between sexual perverts, who though, sexually, who though heterosexually inclined, indulge in homosexual practices, so sexual perverts who, though heterosexually inclined, indulge in homosexual practices. On the other hand, he, he mentions homosexual inverts, people who have a homosexual disposition. And John Stott argues that it is the sexual pervert that Paul is condemning here and not the homosexual invert. Now, the gay community seems to make little distinction between these two, and this does little to help the situation. 
I wonder whether much of what we see in the gay pride marches are actually an attempt to rebel against God's ordained way for man and woman. Now, not all of it, I grant you. And John Stott wrote this. True gay liberation is not freedom from God's revealed purpose in order to construct our own morality. It is rather freedom from our self-willed rebellion in order to love and obey him. True gay liberation is not freedom from God's revealed purpose in order to construct our own morality. It is rather freedom from our self-willed rebellion in order to love and obey him. And it's this self-willed rebellion that the Apostle Paul is particularly looking at in this opening chapter of Romans. Maybe the symbol of gay pride, the rainbow, is something that uh, they need to consider more closely. How often have you stopped to think about how amazing a rainbow is? Invisible light splits up into a myriad of separate colours which always appear in the same order. The rainbow is always in a bow shape. If those who waved the rainbow flags would just stop and think about the beauty and wonder of the rainbow, which is clear for all of us to reflect upon, then perhaps they would realise the truth of what Paul said when he wrote, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what from what God has, from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Let's pray. Lord, we are without excuse for failing to recognise that we have a great Creator God. Thank you for having opened our eyes to recognise that this world has been wonderfully made by you. Help us to be always full of the joy of it and empower us, we pray, to help open the eyes of the blind, to discover this for themselves and the Lord Jesus as the man through whom the worlds were made. In Jesus' name. Amen.